Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that says there is unreasonable behaviour on both sides. But I am, of course, talking about my neighbours. Please turn your fucking telly down. I'm Tien and Yebin this week as the Prime Minister and palm husk refilled with bullshit, Boris Johnson, urges the British public to shop with confidence. Did he intend to sound like an advert for tenor pads, or is it just the natural result of taking the piss for quite so long? That's right, the new government message is just a shop till you drop. Ill with coronavirus. Quickly, while stocks are 50% cough. Non-essential shops have now reopened across England. Is it safe? Who cares? Because according to the Prime Minister, retail therapy is all you need to fight germs, as though the coronavirus only attacks anyone wearing last season's colours. Queues have been around the block for many high street retailers, who the Chancellor and man with all the depth of personality that you'd find in a broken Tupperware set, Rishi Sunak, says are very excited for customers to return, proving that he's been so privileged in life he's never ever had to work in retail, or he'd know that absolutely wasn't true at all. Some bookshops are promising to take books off shelves for 72 hours if customers touch them without buying them. So collectively, listen up to this, collectively, we can all work together to make sure criminal tortoise Geoffrey Archer doesn't sell a single copy of his new book. We can do it, people. Let's do it. Zoos have also reopened because it's only fair to give the animals a chance to see what it's like when humans make themselves extinct. And theme parks are opening too, which is great news for me as my daughter is too small to go on the rides so I can leave her at the lost children tent and get a few hours free childcare. Finally. Single parents or people who live alone can now choose one household to become a social bubble with, which is great news for those widowed grandparents who've always wanted their children to know which their favourite is. Sadly, no news yet for people who've after three months of lockdown with their families wish that they live by themselves. Time to spend for the country, said Johnson, because it's unlikely that him or the Chancellor will allow the country to spend for you for much longer. Clap for the NHS, take control, stay alert and now go out and splurge all the cash you don't have on clothes you don't need because you still can't go anywhere so that pair of stained pyjamas is going to be sufficient until about October. But you know, for Britain. 
The country has met the five tests by saying that it has, so it just must be true. And on Saturday, only 36 people died from COVID-19, which, according to Health Secretary and the world's saddest quaver crisp, Matt Hancock, means that we are winning the battle against this horrible disease. So, hey, why not quit while we're ahead? I mean, you can't lose if you're not even taking part, right? And who actually knows if any of this makes sense as scientists haven't been at any of the daily briefings for days because in the same way, you can't follow the science if you don't know where it is. Or you do know where it is, but no one else realises there's a dungeon under number 10 and you ain't saying nothing. Reports say the Prime Minister hasn't turned up to a COVID-19 Cobra meeting for over a month, though maybe the rest of the Cabinet requested that he just didn't after every previous appearance just involved him asking why we can't pay for someone to beat it up over and over again. Considering last week Johnson said he was taking direct control, does that mean they've just given him his own TV remote and told him to stay in his room and watch what he likes? Or has Johnson just had enough of the coronavirus already? Is it much like his previous relationships, something he thought was a fun challenge but then got too close and now just wants to run away and let someone else deal with it? Or is he already just tired of being Prime Minister altogether? I mean, take the past few weeks as case in point. Whereas before, his response to the past week of protests would be that racism would be defeated if we were just optimistic enough, or, hey, what about building a bridge? I don't know to where, just between people, but like one that costs money. Now, his idea is to have a new commission for tackling racial inequality. Ah yes, nothing like the people responsible for greater inequality and racial prejudice shining a light on inequality and racial prejudice. Hopefully they'll just sit still and pass a lamp round while pointing at each other. There are over 250 recommendations for how to tackle racial inequality in the system from BAME groups that have submitted all their policies to the government. But I guess that would require doing something, whereas a commission will mean that they'll spend loads of time finding something we all actually knew existed and then for the government to ignore that anyway because it's all taken too long and, oh, Boris is on holiday again. As the far right marched in London and many other cities over the weekend, it took Johnson just several hours to cough up a carbon copy of the tweet that he did the week before for the Black Lives Matter events. Sure, there was the racism has no part in the UK bit, something that if he was serious about, he'd leave the country. But alongside it was the same concerns that the marches and protests have been subverted by violence. That's what he said about the Black Lives Matter protest, but with those, he also wrote an eight-tweet thread insisting that the Winston Churchill statue was important and that while he may have expressed opinions that are unacceptable to us today, we cannot now try to edit and censor our past. Which is hypocritical at best from a man who still won't even release the Russia report into interference in the last election. No one was saying to take the Churchill statue down, but Johnson's concern about this non-thing happening led to it having a large box erected around Old Churchy, making it look as though on revelation in its place would be Debbie McGee doing jazz hands or David Blaine trying not to piss himself. I'm not saying that Johnson's comments helped to incite the far right, but a whole bunch of red bald men looking like sore potatoes took to the capital and various monuments around the country, insisting they were there to defend the statues after last week's sea burial of Edward Colston and subsequent removal of other historically shitty people like Robert Milligan. I'm not saying that racists are thick as pig shit, but many groups gathered around statues that, unlike Colston, had absolutely nothing to do with slavery, and a few even around statues of abolitionists. Which begs the question, did they remotely understand why protesters removed Edward Colston's statue last week, or did they just think that BLM was an anti-statue movement standing for banished large monuments? Or maybe they looked at these pale, stony-faced men who hadn't changed in years, despite the world moving on around them, and felt some sort of kinship. Or maybe they're just like lumps that stand around doing absolutely nothing for years, which is probably why they voted for Boris Johnson. 
Many of the far-right protesters stood supposedly defending the cenotaph while also doing Nazi salutes, which is a bit like saving an endangered species by eating it with chips. One man in particular, Andrew Banks, was caught urinating on the memorial to PC Keith Palmer, who died during the terrorist attack on Westminster in 2017. I suppose you could argue that Andrew Banks thought that he was marking it with his scent, you know, therefore protecting it from other predators. But it was actually just another example of those who pretend that they care about the country, pissing over all the best things about it. Black Lives Matter very cleverly and sensibly decided to cancel their march on Saturday, uh, choosing only to do local protests so that they'd avoid a clash with EDL activists and fascists. So instead, the uncooked doe crew just scuffled with police and each other, and I have to say, I was quite shocked at how many lone wolves and one-off bad apples were there together. I mean, what are the chances? At one point, a man in a White Lives Matter t-shirt got called a racist by an All Lives Matter protester, like if Thanos accused Ultron of not having any morals. It's the sort of fracturing of the far right that us lefties have been excellent at for years, and it's nice to see that they're finally catching up, though I'm not sure how many fringe groups you can get when everyone looks exactly the same. Still, if they find something to argue about other than appearance, it might show that they're evolving. There were more than 100 arrests, which compared to the 29 protesters arrested at the Black Lives Matter demos the week before, shows that yes, white people are superior at being criminal violent rioters. But then, that is basically what colonisation was, so we all knew. Home Secretary and that weird unpleasant metal taste in your mouth, but as a person, Pretty Patel, said that a small minority behaved in extreme thuggery. But it wasn't a small minority, it was hundreds and hundreds of white British racists. Maybe she only used the term small minority as a clever way for her to trick herself into disliking them. That is an unfair joke, of course, as Pretty Patel clearly doesn't like racists. As she said herself in the comments, she has received racist abuse throughout her life, and not just as part of the warm-up exercises she gives staff in the Home Office. No, she was called a number of unacceptable terms, which is why when asked by Labour MP Florence, definitely not Taiwa Owatami or Kate Osamore because it's really not that hard, Eshlomi. If Patel would look at resolving structural inequality, the Home Secretary told her that she wouldn't be lectured by the other side of the House. Because I'm not sure if you know or understand that the racism that Pretty Patel has had, potentially just from her dad who was a UKIP counsellor, is exactly the same as absolutely everyone else who's ever suffered racial abuse has actually had. Okay? It's exactly the same. And that's why, by asking her dad to stop it and everyone at the Home Office only to name call when no one else is around, racism has been completely and utterly dealt with. 30 black and minority ethnic Labour MPs wrote to the Home Secretary, headed by MP and woman who looks like she'd talk to you on the bus even though you had your headphones in, Naj Shah, asking Patel to reflect on her words. The Home Secretary responded on Twitter by saying she was being silenced. But maybe being asked to think of other people's experiences is silencing for Pretty Patel. I mean, if she suddenly gained empathy, how on earth would she be able to work in the Home Office? At least Pretty Patel and Boris Johnson condemned the protests on Saturday, even if it wasn't an outright acknowledgement that they were very different to the largely peaceful Black Lives Matter ones the week before. It's not the same to have one group of people demanding equality and justice for all, and a change from hundreds of years of oppression, and one group who thinks they're the superior race because they haven't seen their penises in years, and they're the only species whose lineage is directly traceable to the fatberg. Whereas in comparison, Labour leader and metal loo roll holder with a cover, Keir Starmer, refused to say even far-right or racists in his one tweet condemning protesters, because then how will he get them to vote Labour next time round or support the party by buying one of the reissued immigration mugs? Starmer took part in the online Grenfell Memorial along with the Prime Minister, remembering those who died three years ago in the horrific fire caused by unsafe cladding that still covers over 2,000 buildings in the UK as the government completely missed their target to remove it all just four days ago. Many of those who lost their homes and loved ones in that fire still haven't been rehoused. It's pretty disgraceful. 
As both party leaders pledged to make sure this wouldn't happen again, it was very hard not to feel like that means Starmer's Labour will fight to make sure that rather than make residential buildings safer, they'll probably just campaign for more fire blankets in high-rise homes. Meanwhile, Johnson will give contracts to many of his friends to do infrastructure work on the rest of the affected buildings and they'll all be turned into luxury flats or bridges with the original flammable cladding left on the side. Labour MP and gopher David Lammy said Johnson's plan for a racial inequality commission lacked detail and was written on the back of a fag packet, which is actually credit to the Prime Minister because I'd assumed he'd not written anything down at all. It's all very obvious that he won't do anything and will leave it for whoever comes next. You know, much like Brexit, where according to Johnson, the talks with the EU just need a bit of oomph without realising that yes, that is the problem, but it's on his side rather than theirs. Apparently, the PM sees no reason why trade deals with the EU can't be done in July, but that's the problem. He sees no reason, so why on earth would he be bothered to try? It's up to the EU to put a tiger in the tank, Johnson said, in one of those phrases that was created to sell petrol but doesn't actually mean anything in reality. A tiger in what? A fish tank? That's too cruel. An army tank? Well, a tiger wouldn't know what to do. What a waste of resources and the tiger's time. But it's the sort of phrase that in a month's time, unless the EU negotiators physically take one of the world's most endangered species and pop it into a liquid-tight container of some sort, Johnson will just be able to say they've not kept to their word and will collapse his face first into a no-deal as he thinks that option has less prep work involved. Footballer Marcus Rashford wrote an amazing open letter calling on the government to reverse their decision on not providing free school meal vouchers for children during the summer. Because yes, 2020 is the year where footballers appeal for societal change while politicians score own goals on the global stage. More than 1.3 million children rely on free school meals and the Food Foundation said that around 200,000 a day are skipping meals because their family can't provide them with food during lockdown due to lack of money or access. But Johnson has already rejected Rashford's plea, instead confirming the system will end at the beginning of summer, meaning that kids will go hungry. How can Johnson let children be neglected like that? Yeah, I know, I know, write your own jokes here. He has yet to officially respond, but Downing Street have said that he understands the issues facing families across the UK, which he doesn't, or he'd not be telling them just to go out and shop. I guess maybe the PM is allowing thousands of children to starve in order to emulate his hero once again, Winston Churchill. Rashford is already working with a food distribution charity to deliver 3 million meals a week to vulnerable people during lockdown, and his letter has received over 200,000 retweets on Twitter and support from the National Education Union, among others. So, by rejecting it, Johnson isn't going for the popular choice, which is a really odd thing for a populist. It's like he can't even do that right. Same goes for the updated Gender Recognition Act, which would have made it easier for people to legally change their gender until the government decided to scrap it this week. It was a publicly popular idea, always getting at least 70% or more in the polls, but I guess we know that Johnson has an aversion to making any transition period go smoothly. It's alright though, because what he will do is make sure no one can upset a statue and make sure everyone protects statues and no one forgets about statues of people we don't already get to forget about because the curriculum and television and media is all swayed so we only ever remember the bits of history that make us look like good guys and not the colonial murdering bastards that we were and in some cases still very much are. And that's what's important, right? You know, that's what's really important. Even if adversely by caring more about those statues and the welfare of actual living people, it'll mean the entire country goes bust. In other news, but also the same news, Tory MP and sadistic lychee Ian Duncan-Smith has said that the two-metre social distancing rule should be changed, probably because despite no longer being in the DWP, he knows it stops them scrapping someone's disability benefits if they can manage to crawl even half of that. And conglomerate of all the things that you have to clean from the rim around your fridge, Nigel Farage has stepped down, you know, in the way that you do so you don't fall down from the hard push, from his radio presenting job at LBC, days after saying the protesters who took down Edward Colston's statue were like the Taliban. 
I don't really think that comparison works as the Taliban aren't really known for fighting for equality, but Nigel probably got confused as many of the people doing it weren't white and were wearing face masks, so that's all his racist brain can compute. And I'm worried that they're going to announce that his replacement is a three hours with Goebbels' ghost show. Though fingers crossed they'll do the right thing and make him extra sad by getting someone from abroad to take his job. Uh, greetings, Parpolbrod types. Welcome to yet more of the same shit. Um, the next time I have to try and find another joke, yet another joke about why Boris Johnson is a lazy arsehole who makes hollow, overblown statements that mean nothing, I might just use something from an old episode. Um, how can I be doing more work than him right now? Ugh. Anyway, how are you all coping? Um, I'll tell you what got my goat this week. Nope, not trolls. Nope, not the goat catcher. Nope, not a goat trap. Um, it was a BBC tweet describing racists as anti-racism critics. Because that is weird, isn't it? Just say racist. Like, if you're anti-racism, then you're... Like, if you're an anti-racism critic, then you're a racist. It just... Like, you wouldn't call a serial killer an anti-murder detractor, would you? Or a terrorist an anti-terrorist denigrator. It's just so weird. It's so unnecessary. Um, the letter that went around to BBC employees as well, telling them that while the BBC is not neutral on racism, staff have to be impartial about which causes they support so as to not upset viewers. Uh, that is also horrendous. I mean, look, I do understand, as if they upset racists, then they'll have Nigel Farage booked in for those 100,000 further TV and radio appearances for no reason, and they can't have that. Um, it just, I mean, it just amazes me that the far right in particular like to call out people for being snowflakes who are offended by, you know, things, but then they get very upset if you actually call them a racist when they are. I did a tweet about the irony of fascists wanting to protect the Churchill statue uh, a few days ago, and so many people responded with, who are you calling fascist? I'm just against vandalism and rioters. And it's like, well, firstly, if you think this is about you, that's your problem. Um, and secondly, I was calling the people doing Nazi salutes covered in swastika tattoos fascists. Or is that now politically incorrect? Should I now be calling them anti-Nazi knockers or something like that? Oh, someone sent me a tweet I did in 2009 about needing scientists to make zips for pita breads. That's the fun stuff I used to make jokes about back in the day when life was enjoyable. You remember that 11 years ago when pita bread zips were the worst of our worries? I mean, look, sure, there was also the financial crash, but I was already poor, so I didn't really notice. But look, here we are, um, another week, and it is late in the old DMHQ, so while I could complain and complain about the endless stupidity of people, I won't. I won't do that. Um, it's not my fault that two 80-year-olds, one in a mobility scooter, physically pushed everyone out the way in the queue to queue gardens the other day to race to the front, and I ended up swearing at them very, very loudly. Um, I mean, it's up to them if they think they're too privileged for viruses to get them. But I do hope they keep trying in order to find out that is definitely the case. Sorry, I wasn't, I wasn't going to do any more complaining. That was no more complaining. Um, what I was going to say was thanks for tuning in yet again. Um, thank you tons also to James, Andrew, Claire, Richard and Joe for the Kofi donations, which as always are so very appreciated right now. Um, I've got no actual work. Oh my God. Um, and if you too feel like this show is worth the price of a coffee, or if not this show, you know, me just staying alive as the comedy industry completely disappears, then please do throw a quid or two to the ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro or join the patreon.com forward slash parpolbro site. If you can't do that, do a nice five-star review for the show on Apple Podcasts or the like, and Ovs just shout about listening to this thing whenever you can. Speaking of listening to this thing, this, this episode, this one here, is episode 192, which if you ignore all the weird little bonus episodes I've done and crap that I've, extra crap that I've put out, that means it's nearly the 200th episode coming up um, in... Yeah, in like eight weeks. It's not nearly. It's like two, got like two months to go. Um, but, it, you know, we'll probably still be in lockdown by then. Everything will seem the same. It might feel like half a day to you, depending on how your life is. Um, who sh- 
should I do something special? Should I do something nice? I mean, obviously it depends on what the state of the world is by then, but are there any particular guests you'd like me to try and get or get back? Or no guests and I do something different? Um, I'm not really sure how you celebrate the 200th of something as I'm not old enough to have found out yet. I mean, what do vampires do? Or Highlanders? Do they get two letters from the Queen? If you have any suggestions of how to do a celebrating, then please let me know. Um, also, I haven't tried it out yet. I need to actually test the system, but I'm still aiming to do that call-in live show on Thursday 25th at 8pm. Put that in your diaries, and I will be tweeting and Facebooking more info very, very soon. Um, and that is it. That is it for this week's Admin Vorville. Uh, the kids' comedy politics show I did with Tatton Spiller and Simple Politics um, called How Does This Politics Thing Work Then? That is still online for another week on my personal YouTube page, uh, youtube.com forward slash Do Yeah, Try spelling it. It won't work. Um, and then after a week I'm going to take it down and set fire to it because it's so untopical what with it being filmed last September um, so if you and your kids do want to watch it do check it out and the link is in the podcast blurb uh, this week's show uh, has brilliant playwright and general theatre clever person Dan Rebellato telling me all about why the arts are completely fucked um, which is fine with me as according to the Arts Council comedy isn't an art uh, I'm not sure what it is instead pretty sure quite a few people don't even find me entertaining so I don't think it's like entertainment is there a category just for being? I'll probably, probably have to look it up. While it'd be hard to argue with anyone who said that right now there is far too much drama in the world, it's not the sort that you'd watch for relaxation. Well, unless you're a disaster capitalist. You're probably loving it. Getting a glass of wine, watching the news in your bank account. Anyway, thanks to old corona, up to 70% of theatres currently face their final act. With 50% of all music venues seemingly playing their last tune, most comedy clubs definitely not having the last laugh, even though also sort of are, and a whole ton of museums being confined to history. Culture is very important, not only for education, understanding, escapism and giving me something to do, but the theatre industry alone contributes over £32 billion to the British economy, which is a lot considering how very little of that will come from tax as actors earn nothing 10 months of the year. Over 50% of theatres in the country are charities or trusts that are currently receiving no support. And the other 50% have no income either and are working out how and when they'll restart when every show will only be able to have the average audience of one of my Edinburgh Fringe performances. So it's going to be tricky. Self-employed support ending in August means not only performers, but tech staff and many other theatre staff will have no income at all. And it's looking like the sort of bleak situation that Jim Cartwright would write something poetic about in 10 years time. But sadly, there'd be no one around to put it on and nowhere to go to watch it. So how to save the arts? And is this now an opportunity to turn things around and make theatre more affordable and diverse again? Or will the loss of venues and income for those involved, social distancing and the need for funds mean that the last two theatres left in the UK have tickets for £7 million each, so it's only Richard Branson that will be able to sit and watch Benedict Cumberbatch beat every single role in Hamilton? This week, I spoke to Dan Rebellato, uh, and Dan is a playwright for theatre and radio, an author of many books about contemporary theatre, and he's currently a professor of theatre at the Royal Holloway University of London. I've known Dan from the world of Twitter for quite some time, and even met him in the real world back then when that was allowed. And so I dropped him a line to see if he'd mind explaining exactly why theatre is in so much trouble right now, what effects that has on the rest of the country, and what could or should be done about it. Uh, I'm fully aware, as I briefly mentioned earlier, that theatres are a very small sector in the whole arts industry that's struggling right now. Um, there's many other venues, many other performance types that are uh, in trouble, as is the whole hospitality sector. And I will try and get people on to talk about other areas that need help right now um, in future episodes too. But Dan is an expert on theatre, so it seemed very best to pick his brains on exactly that and how, just how, to stop the final curtain falling. I hope you enjoy. Here is Dan. 
Uh, I mean, I've got a pretty good awareness about this, what with my entire industry uh, being uh, just dead at the moment. But how much trouble are the arts and culture sector in right now? Well, the arts are in terrible trouble generally. It slightly differs by art form. I guess the museums and galleries, you could imagine those opening relatively soon. But the performing arts, as you say, are, are facing what uh, an existential threat, as that phrase is. And, um, you know, I should say I'm kind of a theatre person. Uh, a lot of what I'm going to say is, is relevant, I guess, to music and to stand-up comedy and dance and opera and stuff like that. But there are differences between them. But it's been sort of calculated that probably 70% of theatres might close without help by the end of the year. 70 of theatres in the country. Uh, because basically, obviously, they have still have quite a lot of outgoings and they have no income pretty much at all. So uh, I think Sonny Friedman reckoned the um, uh, kind of playhouse is probably still paying out £30,000 a, a month. Um, but there's actually, uh, there was a letter to MPs that suggested that figure might be seventy to 100000 The National Theatre is probably paying millions a month, but there's literally no income, almost literally no income at all. So yeah, really screwed. Because there have been quite a few theatres that have closed already, haven't there? I saw that like the Nuffield in Southampton's already gone into administration, which is a shame. It's an absolutely beautiful theatre. But uh, I think that was one of about six that I read about. Yeah, that's right. That have already gone. And also, you know, the Nuffield is is like a big old theatre. I mean, that's if a big beast like that can go under, uh, it's there are real, real problems. Leicester Haymarket's also gone. Shakespeare's Globe seems to be kind of on the on the edge. Royal and Gate, it's also on the brink. Um, the National Theatre, I mean, Rufus Norris at the National Theatre is is in serious trouble. And what's what's the money going out on at the moment? Is that because staff have been furloughed and they're obviously still having to top up the furlough without any incomings at all? Or is or is money going out on other things too? Um, no, I think it's probably more likely to be things like building rents, upkeep. There is a skeleton staff, the people there, they're still employing insurance rates, website costs, stuff like that. Um, uh, and, the, and then the problem is that the way the furlough scheme is going to develop is I think they actually have to start contributing in September. I think that's right. I think from the beginning of August, they have to start paying national insurance and pension. It goes up to paying 20% uh, a little after that, I think. And then, of course, the furlough scheme disappears completely. So at the moment, I think there are, there are no staff costs to furlough, but that's going to increase despite having zero income. And and that's also theatres that we're talking about. But then there are small theatre companies. And I mean, I, I, as I sort of mentioned, I speak my own experience as a stand-up comedian. There are no gigs anymore, so I've got nowhere to get income from. But that must be the touring theatre companies must have the same problem. Small, you know, independent group, theatre groups must be having a very similar issue. Yes. And the other problem is that um, I think 70% of the theatre industry, and I imagine this is probably true of a lot of other industries as well, are, are freelancers. And freelance scheme that the government set in place um, is quite complicated and it's quite easy to fall through the gaps in it because um, you know, there's a very technical set of things you have to you have to line up in order to qualify for the, for the kind of um, uh, self-employed scheme. Uh, and it's quite easy not to qualify for that. And I think um, I think they reckon that two thirds of freelancers are covered. But that's a third of freelancers that are not covered. And that's going to be a lot of people who work in the arts. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I found it amazing that there, the second uh, the Rishi Sunak said it was going to be based on profit, and I thought, well, that is most people in the arts screwed <laughs> instantly. I don't know anyone that's ever profited. Uh, is, is sort of a handful. Benedict Cumberbatch will be all right, and I think everyone else is in a, a lot of trouble. <laughs> you know what, Benedict Cumberbatch won't be right because there's also a cap. If you earn more than fifty thousand from your from your acting, uh, then you're also not covered. So it's actually a really tiny group of people who who, who are going to be um, supported. And the other problem, the other big problem, is that a lot of people like actors, obviously, they'll get bits of self-employed work and then they will do stretches of bar work, that kind of PAYE or something like that. And if you were in the wrong phase of your career cycle at the wrong time, you may just be completely ineligible for any of this support, in fact, for any of this support, because the, the, the temping in a bar, you're not going to be furloughed. So it's a real problem. Gosh, that is brutal. And I mean, I mean one of the things I'm sort of realising as well is that obviously theatres have had to cancel plays, they've had to cancel things, but, you know, to have work ready for whenever theatres do come back also requires you having actors in work doing rehearsals and you know, getting things ready and building sets and, and having the whole place prepped. So are we going to, you know, are they going to be in trouble for whenever things return? Because we won't have had all this time to prepare for whatever comes next. Yeah, I mean, if if in the completely unlikely uh, scenario that there is, there's a sort of glorious turn the culture back on day, uh, it will it will need to be probably a couple of months before actually anything can happen. The, the, the obviously the big problem is it doesn't look like that is going to happen. There's going to be a sort of fade back uh, and that people are talking about socially distanced performances. But, you know, uh, if, if people have to stay two metres apart in a pretty standard theatre or concert hall or, or gig venue, um, you are going to basically be able to get in about 10, 15% of your uh, usual, of your capacity audience. And certainly most theatres need to break even about 60 to 70%. So that that is just not possible. That's not going to work. Um, the, the, there's another big problem to add to all these terrible problems that um, people are going to, A, be nervous about coming back. And also people are going to be out of the habit of going to mm. these places. Um, they, there's kind of standard thing that even if you if, even if you have kind of building work to I don't know enlarge your foyer or renovate your seating or something, it's really striking that it takes a while for the audience to come back because in that six months or whatever it is, they've all done other things. They've all got used to watching Netflix or whatever it is. So so it's a long road to recovery. Um, this might be a very silly question because I feel like I know the answer and obviously you do, but just for the sake of the listeners. Why? Why does theatre need to be saved? You know, is it why? Why is this an important sector to save? Well, um, there are there are lots of answers to that question. Obviously, I mean, the, I think the most important one is it, it's intrinsically uh, brilliant. I mean, British theatre, British arts are are a kind of wonder of the world. I mean, they are generally very, very admired. They're very successful, um, you know, in terms of theatre, the kind of the actors that we produce, the writers that we produce, just kind of populate the, the, the film and television uh, of the world. And it's a kind of huge ecology as well. So why does theatre need to be saved? 
it's um, it's a key part of the ecology of of our national culture and and global culture. You know, so you don't even have to go to the theatre to value the theatre. If you've watched Succession or Normal People or Doctor Who or The Crown or Call the Midwife or Quiz or Killing Eve or Doctor Foster or Noughts and Crosses, you are watching television shows that were written by people who were fostered in the theatre. Um, there's the great example of, you know, the, the British theatre had a kind of moment of great renaissance in the 1950s when um, the Royal Corps kind of set up in a new way and look back in anger kind of burst onto the stage and so on uh, and and that really inspired a whole new wave of British theatre to put look back on uh, look back in anger on screen they decided to set up a new film company uh, Woodfall Films and they produced some of the most important films uh, that re-inspired British cinema Saturday Night Sunday Morning Taste of Honey Loneliness the Long Distance Runner that sort of thing somebody watching those films in the early 60s thought wouldn't it be great to do a television series that had kind of that gritty comic northern working class energy and invented Coronation Street so it, it all connected do you know what I mean so you can't take one chunk of it out and expect the rest to survive I mean because I mean I, you know, personally, I think it's got unbelievable benefits. And I think it, in terms of education and, and uh, it's so incredibly rewarding anyway. But I, I think one of the things that absolutely shocked me was in Sam Mendes' piece, which I want to ask you more about in a minute, but w- was the amount of money that the British theatre industry and the arts industry actually brings in. And it was sort of equivalent to the Premier League, or <laughs> something which I was absolutely shocked by. Um, so, so, you know, in terms of uh, the economy, it's a really good idea to keep it going. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, we are a we're a net exporter of theatre, uh, and um, and all the kind of soft power that goes with that. In terms of the economy, I well, there were I think there was something like thirty four million theatre visits last year, uh, which is absolutely equivalent to the I think the Premier League and the Championship combined. Um, it, it, it it's always really difficult to. Um, calculate the impact of uh, of the arts on the economy partly because they're you know they, they sometimes talk about direct indirect and induced um uh, impacts and there's a kind of direct you know there's this money going into the box office and and so on then there are kind of you know the west end supports central london's restaurants and bars and taxis and that sort of stuff and then it that creates employment that is then spent further on the economy so they reckon it's something like 47 and a half billion aggregate contribution to the uh, economy um and and there's a kind of there's a real multiplier so that the amount of investment that goes in is paid back uh, massively i don't know if you saw James Graham, the playwright on um, Newsnight quite recently, he made a really good point that it's not a matter of a, it's not a choice between paying for hospital beds or paying for the arts because the arts actually help pay for the hospital beds. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we'll be back with Dan in a minute. But first... You know Robert Jenricks, yeah? You know Robert Jenricks, the uh, the housing secretary that only seems to have got his job on account of having several houses. You know, like how Matt Hancock is health secretary because all his policies are like horrible accidents that lead to emergencies. Well, Robert Jenrick, yeah, there are questions about whether or not he's been up to shenanigans after he overruled objections from a local council and planning officers to approve an application for a £1 billion housing development in the Isle of Dogs from billionaire media mogul and guess who character Richard Desmond. Two months before it was approved, Desmond attended a political fundraiser where he just happened. He just happened to be sat next to Jenrick. These things happen, don't they? And he said that he lobbied him to push through the construction plans. Though Jenrick says that he told Desmond he couldn't discuss it there and then. And I don't know what else he talked about. Um, You know, which one of Robert Jenrick's five houses he'd broken lockdown rules in. Anyway, then two weeks after the housing development was approved, Richard Desmond also donated £12,000 to the Conservative Party, which very much beats a thank you card, doesn't it? And why should you give a shit? Well, very good question, but here's why. Desmond's housing plans were for the West Ferry Printworks redevelopment, which was 1,500 homes in East London, but only 21% of them were going to be affordable housing. So at 80% of the already hugely unaffordable London rate. I mean, 80% of money no one even on a reasonable wage will ever have is still quite a lot of money. The target for large housing schemes in the capital is 35%, so this was well, well under, hence criticism from the council and planning officials. Not only that, but it was pushed through one day before a new community infrastructure law came in, meaning any developers were then going to have to pay £40 million to support projects in Tower Hamlets, London's poorest borough. So by pushing it through just the day or so before, Jenrick was making sure that Desmond got to keep more of the money that he has and doesn't need, rather than, you know, actually help people with it. While he simultaneously was able to make sure that no one could afford to live in the homes unless they were super rich. Ah, how lovely and giving. What a caring bunch. Now, so far, Jenrick has said that all of this is above board. Of course he has. He didn't discuss anything with Desmond pre-planning approval, but Desmond said he did, and it's hard to know which of the two immoral arseholes to believe, but they can't both be wrong. It's like that riddle in Labyrinth, but where both doors lead to a home that you can't afford. Jenrick did accept that it looked like apparent bias in the decision, and that's why he ended up quashing it and saying a different minister would have to decide on it. Though Tower Hamlet's council believed that he quashed it so he wouldn't have to release the official documentation, which may or may not have said that Richard Desmond had lobbied him before the approval. 
Jenrick also didn't bother turning up to an urgent question session in the Commons last week and instead sent a junior housing minister, hilariously named for a Conservative, Chris Pincher, to constantly say that he had no clue about anything and tried his best not to cry. Which doesn't really look great if there's an urgent question about your conduct and you decide it's just much better to send someone else. Jenrick did then turn up to a Commons questioning at the beginning of this week and again he just sort of said that he'd done nothing wrong and that he did sit next to Richard Desmond totally by accident. But hey, I mean, I guess that's just what happens if you're not used to sitting because you're more used to lying. You know, that's what happens. So this leads to the questions of whether or not Robert Jenrick has breached ministerial code. And the code says that if you discuss official business with a contact without there being another official present, you have to disclose all of your chat, otherwise naughties could be happening. That's exactly what it says, just like that, those words and everything. MPs also have to declare any personal interests and relationships, you know, like the one Boris Johnson promises he didn't have with Jennifer Arcuri, and that MPs' decisions must be made fairly without any bias. The thing is, as you might have noticed, there have been quite a lot of contracts given by the government lately to companies where that last one about decisions being made fairly without any bias is suddenly a little bit questionable. And it's all been under the guise of coronavirus legislation. For example, G4S and Serco and Deloitte have all got testing contracts despite being absolutely massively shit in many other things that they've ever, ever done. No, sure, if they can't work out when a company's about to collapse financially, I'm sure they'll totally understand who's got positive test results when it comes to very specific biological medical conditions. An AI firm that worked with the Vote Leave campaign has been awarded a £400,000 contract to potentially data gather on COVID stuff, so I'm sure that won't lead to any issues. Dido Harding, who's in charge of the track and trace scheme, is married to a Tory MP and is on the board of the Cheltenham races that they allowed to go ahead when we should have been in lockdown. And the government are currently being sued over handling £350 million of PPE contracts to a pest control company without the contract ever being advertised for bidding by anyone else. Which is just bonkers. A pest control company? Coronavirus isn't that sort of bug, you idiot. This contract for the West Ferry Printworks feels much the same, especially as the Prime Minister has been reported to have met with one of the lobbyists from Desmond's firm too, back when he was London Mayor and he approved an initial development scheme in the same area. And Richard Desmond is a proper piece of work, who took over owning the Daily Star and Express back in 2000, firing so many journalists that one of the Express writers that stayed on wrote a piece in the editorials with an acrostic that spelled out Fuck You Desmond, which is the sort of smarts I'd expect was completely and utterly wasted on Express readers. He's always flitted between political parties depending on who could do him favours, with a big donation to Labour when the government allowed him to take over the newspapers, and then a massive donation to UKIP in 2015, which explains well all of those front pages. And now after selling both of those newspapers for a massive fortune in 2018, he's back to the Tories and it seems they can help him get developments built. Or at least, in the case of Robert Jenricks, absolutely knows what houses look like, because he's got loads, he's got bloody loads. How's he meant to know which one to stay in in lockdown? So, so hard to tell. An inquiry is being urged by Labour and some members of the London Assembly are also calling for a police investigation. So hopefully some light will be shone on this and Jenrick will have to own up or step down. Unlike Desmond's planned property, hopefully it won't all be quashed before there's significant developments. And now, back to Dan. Wow, that's, I mean, that's incredible when you put it. I, I didn't even think about the effect that it has on all the industries that are around it that support it. And the, just even on restaurants that have a pre-theatre menu, <laughs> that's, you know, that's such a big thing. Um, so, you know, now that we've sold the case for theatre very, very well, why why aren't they being supported? And, 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 you know, it feels to me like arts is generally an area that's neglected nearly every time, and, you know, especially in the last sort of 10 years of, of Conservative government, the arts tends to have been just handed to someone that wanted another job and got stuck in the DCMS. Why, why do you feel like they're, they're you know, 
they don't care about it. I mean, I do think there is a there's an ideological um, principle that that the the governments of the last ten years have basically been nursed on from infancy, which is this idea that state subsidy propping up what they see as lame duck industries is a is a terrible thing and they should be made completely self-sufficient um so the idea of of increasing subsidy even to invest is uh is anathema to to this government and of course ironically they have um, they've compounded the problem we've got now because one of the things they d- did, of course, uh, at the time of austerity was reduce subsidy for the arts uh, quite substantially in two ways, partly through reducing the Arts Council, but also through uh, reducing the money that went to local government, because that's another really important um, source of arts funding. To make up, up that shortfall, uh, theatres and, and concert halls were encouraged to diversify their income streams. So, you know, renovate your restaurant, renovate your bar, do lots of venue hire, do workshops and outreach stuff. Uh, and that worked extraordinarily because um, the proportion of income from those sources uh, went up very considerably through the uh, 2010s. Uh, but of course, all of those income streams have collapsed at the same time. The, the bars of the theatre and the venue hire for the theatre is just as zero as as the actual performances themselves and what that actually means in a weird way is that the most successful uh, arts venues in terms of diversifying their income streams uh, are the worst hit because the higher the proportion of your income from your own efforts rather than subsidy the worse you are if you if they'd done absolutely nothing and had just shrunk themselves down to fit the amount of subsidy they were getting in, they might be okay at, at the moment. That's completely bonkers. I mean, so so what's the I mean, what's the solution to this now? You know, because I I, I mentioned the Sam Mendes thing earlier, and he sort of called on the government to become theatrical angels and invest a whole load of money into it. And he's also said, I think that Netflix and Amazon should put money in because that's where they're getting the talent from it are these kind of viable solutions are they is that the only solution is it the only way that we're going to save the industry some mendes suggestions are you know perfectly good they're they're probably among the more cautious and and conservative ideas that you know you sort of kind of change the 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 scope of theatre's tax and and allow investors to, to 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 is it to use one tax loss against another tax gain or whatever it is. Um, so I think those things are kind of fine, but they're 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 pretty small beer really. And also, I think the idea of getting the government to become a direct investor in the arts is slightly broad. I mean, the arts <laughs> has always had a kind of emoto complicated things we've had this thing they call the arm's length principle which is the idea is that you set up the arts council to be independent of government so it doesn't look like you've got direct government censorship or interference the idea that you know boris johnson and the cabinet would sit around the cabinet table saying should we should we support the new play by alan bennett or should we support the new play by james graham just seems like a very dodgy way of <laughs> in the arts in our in our country i, 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 I mean the first thing the absolutely fundamental thing that the government needs to do is create certainty 
Because this is the problem at the moment, is they haven't said anything. I mean, they've said nothing about what they're going to do to help the arts, support the arts. So, I mean, the arts, as you can see, as everyone has seen, the arts have been extraordinarily resourceful at the moment. I mean, they've been endless kind of online streaming performances and, you know, people, orchestras creating symphonies using click tracks in their own homes and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and that kind of stuff is great. And the arts are incredibly, are obviously creative and they're obviously resourceful, but it's really hard to do any planning at all when you don't know what is going to be, when you don't know what's going to be going on in two months time, let alone uh, a year. So they really do have to just set out what they're going to do. Even if that means they say, we're not going to pay you a penny, then at least the arts will know. But I think they, they need to, there needs to be some kind of bridging funding. Basically, the arts are a very, very particular industry that is uniquely hit by, um, uh, by this pandemic. And if the arts structure that we have, which is enormously successful and has been built up painstakingly over 75 years, if that isn't going to completely collapse, they need to invest in it for a couple of years to ensure some continuity. Um, I think the furlough scheme should, they can't just collapse it at the end of October for everyone. There should be a sector by sector uh, discussion about extending furlough for, for certain types of workers. Um, I also think there was a really interesting idea. I think it was actually a Labour spokesman was talking about the problem of bringing back the schools because the schools, again, have to socially distance. Why can't the schools use some of the arts spaces and there would be an income stream for the arts through some injection of, of government money. You'd also get a whole new generation occupying and feeling like they have ownership over those uh, art spaces. So I think it would be really interesting to have, imagine if you had double maths on a Thursday morning taught at the Royal Opera House. Fantastic. Oh, it'd be amazing. It'd be so exciting. It's such a brilliant idea. Absolutely brilliant idea. Um, and do you think, because I've seen some people sort of say that, you know, when theatre starts coming back, this is an opportunity for us to change things, to diversify it more, to make it more accessible. Um, and, and I suppose part of my worry is, like, one of my issues I've had with theatre over several years now is I can't afford a lot of it anymore. And I, if I'm lucky, I can get the cheap national theatre tickets and I might see something sat behind a pillar. But generally, you know, London theatre particularly is, is too expensive. Um, you know, but are there opportunities to change this or is this lack of funding just going to make it more elitist? Um, so it's a really, such a good question. And the the thing that's frustrating about it is there was a really active, uh, very vigorous debate going on, uh, over the last sort of two or three years about, about kind of structural sexism and misogyny in, in, in the arts, but also about, uh, race and racial representation in the arts and things were changing. I mean, it was really interesting, very noticeable in the last uh, year of theatre going that I think it became a that you would get uh, a kind of diverse cast on stage, certainly in the kind of the, the bigger funded uh, major theatres. The worry, I guess, is that people weren't, when things go back, people are going to get extremely conservative and think they have to program in a way that is sort of maximally just sort of 
box office orientated rather than continuing the kind of interesting work uh, that they were doing. Uh, the stuff to say about theatre tickets is, is really important. Um, in fact, I know as somebody who, who sort of follows these theatres really closely, that I can get pretty cheap theatre tickets for, for almost any show. Maybe not the West End, but almost any subsidised theatre, you can get theatre tickets 10, 15 quid, which is cheaper than most cinemas in central London. The problem is, how do you get that information out, you know, so that everybody knows about it equally? It's, it's slightly ridiculous that I know about that, but but not everyone else does. I think there is a real opportunity, though, to to do some real rethinking about how the theatre is funded, uh, how it employs people, uh, the kind of creative opportunities, uh, who the gatekeepers are, um, and even thinking about the kind of spaces that the work is done in. I know that um, Elizabeth Newman at Pitt Lockery Festival Theatre is talking about trying to create a sort of season of work that might all be outdoors in the grounds of the theatre rather the theatre itself and that kind of stuff might be a great creative opportunity and a chance to really do something that shakes up the way theatre is done. Yeah that sounds really exciting it's a, a, a secret hope of mine as well as apart from all the diversifying and all the brilliant things that can happen I also hope there's less musicals based on the songs of some band that were in the 80s if we can get to there I'll be very happy. Um, <laughs> um, a really important question I, I suppose probably the most important question is what can we do what can we do to support arts institutions and artists and you know what what can we do to kind of support people during this time because uh, you know i think uh, i find it quite problematic that there are so many asking and i don't have any money so i'm, I'm no use in this situation anyway but there's so many people saying please help fund us please help do this you know where are the best places to kind of focus funding or support well it's really hard at the moment because the, the there is there's very little kind of funding around i mean i do think I mean, actually, in terms of things you can do, you know, talking to our MPs and, and saying the very first thing is uh, a plan needs to be published for what the government's going to do. I mean, I think the, our MPs need to know that that is an urgent thing. I think we should follow the National Campaign for the Arts, uh, which has been, you know, really bringing out really very useful, gathering in really important information and, and, and bringing out really... Uh, important reports about that um it's interesting scotland is i'm afraid as always slightly ahead of us in england yeah they've got uh, an inquiry um i think it's their culture and is it their culture and tourism committee or something they've got an inquiry in the impact of covid19 on 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 scotland's um culture and they are gathering in you know submissions and reports that feels like that's going to be a really interesting opportunity or it could be a really interesting opportunity. So I think it'd be interesting to kind of follow that. Uh, but yeah, uh, you know, lots of these companies are streaming archive videos of, of old shows and using that sometimes as a, as a fundraiser. I mean, I guess if you, that's a one way of supporting uh, theatres, but really it needs to be a much bigger central government-led uh, uh, strategy. And uh, last uh, and uh, question that I ask all the guests, uh, which is, is that apart from yourself, um, who should people follow? Who do you recommend they read up on? You know, that uh, sort of 
talking about progressive ideas to save the sector or what should happen next? Well, I think um, the unions are pretty on the ball about this at the moment. The Musicians Union, Equity, the Writers Guild, uh, for example. There are there are some kind of high profile, interesting, articulate people who, who work in the arts. Like I've mentioned James Graham and Elizabeth Newman, um, Daniel York, though, who's an actor, Vicky Featherston, the Royal Court, Sam West, the actor. Uh, these are people who who I think are helping to keep a conversation going in 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 a very very informed and exciting way. Thanks so much to Dan for having the time to chat. Uh, you can find his website at danrebelato.co.uk or he's on Twitter at danrebelato. And of course, all links that he mentions will be on the website soonish too. What other pandemic or non-pandemic content do you need to hear? What would soothe or excite your ears right now? Should I just replace all interviews with some whale noises or someone with a nice voice telling you that it'll all be okay over and over again for an hour? Let me know who I should interview and what I should interview people about and you can get in touch by dropping me a line at Parpol Row on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or why not scroll your suggestion across a questionable historical statue while dodging 15 men that look like sore potatoes to do it and I'll see it as it's plastered over every paper and news show in the land to prove that racists aren't as bad as people who write things on inanimate objects that mostly no one cares about. As always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. And yes, well done you. You've made it all the way to the end of the show, which means fanfare, please. You get to hear an exclusive Parpol Bro Hot Pole Goss fact. This week's political fact is so known by very few on account of it not being true. But uh, with that aside, with both Johnson and Starmer making such nothingy comments about the far-right protesting in London that a dragonfly's wings accidentally brushing against a granite wall would have made more impact, which is something they probably would have quickly condemned and then had that dragonfly sentenced to 10 years on vandalism charges for, um, which politician has made the worst post-protest comment ever? Well, that's right. It's going to be Casimir Bartel. Yeah, I know you all knew that. Of course you did. The Polish president from 1926 to 28, who was also a mathematician. And it wasn't during his presidency, but years after, at the beginning of World War II, where he publicly said that all sides were equal, um, which is just ridiculous. But that is because actually he hadn't heard the question and he was looking at a hexagon at the time. Pop Ombro Hot Pole Gus Fact for you right there. And if you enjoyed that or hated it so much that you used the heat generated from your face to power your home for a week free for free of charge, then why not recommend this show to be people who may feel the same about it via your social media channels or just yelling when you go outside. Chuck a few quids at the Kofi or Patreon if you can and please do a nice review for the show on Apple Podcasts or one of the like. Big thanks to Acast, The Last Skeptic, Cat Nate and Mushy Bees and this will be back next week when Boris Johnson will announce that they are scrapping the two metre social distancing rule but instead everyone should just sort of try to keep roughly two metres apart but they don't have to unless they want to but it's also very wise to do it if they can stay 6.56 feet apart will be the message followed by government posters advising what the distance is in hungry school children bye this week's show was sponsored by Statue Defence protect those statues with this new spray that makes them hard as stone nothing will hurt these statues that have no feelings because they're statues if you just buy our spray for 79.99 containing 100% water for some monumental saving heroics Statue Defence please note every 20th bottle contains spray paint as a hilarious joke that we will laugh about amongst ourselves forever
catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 